And we're going to get to the book of Ruth this morning. Finished David last week, and my, my planning took a little bit of a turn at the course of the series, and I had a little gap in the schedule here before I'm going to, we're going to start um, a series on the Ten Commandments on the other side of Labor Day, um, when our community groups are getting going, but have about four weeks here where we got some opportunity to look at a small book, and this summer I read two books on the book of Ruth, just for my own personal uh, walk with the Lord. Um, one book called The Gospel of Ruth by a woman named Carolyn Custis James, who's a commentator. Her husband was actually the president of the seminary where I attended, um, and she's got a great book on the book of Ruth. And then another man named Paul Miller who wrote a book called A Loving Life, looking at Ruth from the perspective of learning how to love from the character's in the book of Ruth. And so it was literally one of those, I, I'm learning this, I'm loving this book, and I want to communicate as best I can the beauty of the story that is going on in the book, the book of Ruth. And so in some ways, also, I, I decided to do this, this is, it's, Ruth functions like a prequel, so you can almost understand it. We just looked at the life of David, but Ruth is kind of the prequel, you know, where they make the main movie first, and then they go back, and they for a movie franchise, and they, they make it, for example, their first there was Hunt for Red October, then they went back and made Patriot Games, and then right, Raiders of the Lost Ark, well, they go back and they show his, historically something that happens before Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is the, the Temple of Doom, right? And then, right, the most classic would be the Star Wars franchise, right? They had the main three movies, but now the whole franchise, Star Wars franchise now, is essentially making prequels, and then we have things like The Hobbit is a very famous prequel as well to the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And so that's essentially what Ruth functions at in the story of the Bible. It is a prequel to the life of David because of the connection, the genealogical connection between Ruth and David. And so we're going to be looking at this book here for the next four weeks. Now, we, we've, as we approach the book of Ruth, we have a couple challenges, two particular challenges. The first is this, is Ruth is a story. The whole book is one story. It is actually designed to be preached and taught and read in one sitting. To see the gospel most beautifully and what is um, most being communicated in the book of Ruth, it is best to actually be read in one sitting. And yet I'm going to look at it over the course of four weeks. And therefore, there will be times where it may be a little bit dissatisfying, the conclusions we come to in the early chapters. We're building tension throughout the book that there, it is leading to something at the end of the story. And so don't read ahead. Stay with me each week. Come in with a sense of curiosity as perhaps of what is next. The second challenge is this, is Ruth, Ruth of, 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 of many, many books in the Hebrew Old Testament are beautifully written. As a piece of literature, they are magnificent. But Ruth, Ruth might top them all. Ruth in the original language and in the Hebrew is there is so much detail that is there that is hard for us to capture in the English language once it is interpreted. And there's so much going on in regards to the story of Ruth that you have to understand in ancient Near Eastern context and what is, what is happening there but that we don't naturally normally consider. And so in order to capture those things, I am, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to preach outside of my comfort zone, which is I'm not going to read the text and just kind of give you kind of classic points. We're going to read the text at various chunks, and I'm going to stop and explain in, fairly, in detail a number of the things that are there so that you can see the beauty of all that is going on in the book of Ruth. 
and get a sense of what is happening here, in particular as it articulates and communicates to us about God's covenant has said love to us, but also how we can display love to one another. So, pick up your Bibles, turn to the, uh, the book of Ruth, chapter 1, is where we're going to begin. We're going to begin with the first section, verses 1 through 5. Four sections we're going to look at. We're going to break down chapter 1 in this way this morning. First, verses 1 through 5, we begin right there at the beginning, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Stop there. The book, right, very quickly, historically places uh, what is this story. It gives us a sense of where it is. If you could imagine the opening scene, if this is the opening scene of a movie, this is kind of, if you could imagine, a dystopian, post-apocalyptic scene. It's Bethlehem, but there's a famine. And the book of Ruth is written after the Israelites, after David has lived, after the Israelites have gone through all their kings. It is actually after they've been dragged into exile and they have come back. It's called a post-exilic book. And so all, all Israelites who would have read this for the first time read Bethlehem, and they're thinking of Bethlehem as the house of David. It's the place of flourishing. And yet, where do we begin? We begin in kind of this dystopian vision, a famine. People are starving to death. Imagine a barren land. It is hot and it is arid. That's the kind of scene that we have here. Not only that, but it goes, it's worse because it's in the time of the, what's it say? The judges. Judges. It's in the time of the judges. We have a, it's actually Ruth. The book of Ruth follows the book of Judges. It's at the same time period. In Judges 21 verse 25 sums up what the book of Judges is about. It says this, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. Now, if you've ever read the book of Judges, the book of Judges is cringeworthy everywhere. It has the most vile, graphic stories you can find in the scriptures. It is a book where God is displaying his judgment upon the people of Israel because they are living without him and they are doing what is right in their own eyes. And when that happens, the world is flipped upside down. Judges, if you could imagine from a political standpoint, if you were to live in the time of judges, it would feel like you're part of one of those countries where warlords rule over small pockets of land. That's judges. That where you're constantly, the people who rule over you are constantly changing. That for a few years things might get good, but then you fall back into sin, and then God judges you and sends awful warlords in to take your village and to take your community and to take your country. That's judges. And so you can imagine, this is almost like the beginning of a movie out of like Mad Max. It's in a desert, there's warlords wandering all over the place, that there is instability constantly, people are starving to death, and it is all happening in the, around the town of Bethlehem. Now what we see here in these first couple of verses, and really in the first five verses, but in particular these first one and two verses, is here what we see in the suffering that is going on is a cruel irony is everywhere. Cruel irony. First, there's a first cruel irony is this, is that Naomi and Elimelech are said to live, this man and his wife are said to live in Bethlehem, where there was a famine. Now before Bethlehem was known as the house of David, literally what the term or word Bethlehem means is house of bread. And so what is the vision that is being given to you here is here, 
That as Israelites were thinking about this is the fount of kings, this is the place where all blessing comes for Israel, and yet here it is, it is an arid, desolated land that is ruled by terrible people, and their sin is everywhere, and not only that, here in the house of bread, people are starving. And if you can imagine in your own mind this scene of this withered out town, and the, 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 the sound, the, the sign welcoming you to Bethlehem has graffiti all over it, it's kind of off its hinges. That's what's happening here. The second cruel irony is this, is where they must go in order to find bread. So they leave Bethlehem and they go to a country called Moab. Moab, Moabites, in the Old Testament, Moabites, well, they're just the worst. That's who Moabites are. Moabites are an icky, perverse, awful people. Their god is a god known as Kemesh. Kemesh, the Moabites were particularly known for giving child sacrifice, for burning their own children alive in order to sacrifice to this god, Kemesh. Everything about the Moabites is icky, down to their very origins. You know where the Moabites come from? That when Lot and his family run out of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's wife looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt, and Lot's daughters have lost their husbands, here's what they decide to do in order to have children. They get daddy drunk. And they sleep with him. That's the Moabites. That's their heritage. It doesn't get any more icky than this. It begins, it's a country and a people and a race that begins with incest. And actually the very word Moabite means this. Mo in Hebrew means who. And Ab means father. This is actually really funny. In other words, Moab means who's your daddy? Because that's the question if you're a child of incest. That can't be your daddy. That's who the Moabites are. And so you see the, uh, the cruel irony of this is that Elimelech and Naomi are a people that must flee the house of bread to go to a place called Moab. And Moab is also known in the history of Israel as when Israel left Egypt and before God has provided them manna, the Moabites refused to even to give them bread or sell them bread. And therefore they are forced to leave the house of bread and go to a place of, to a people who refuse to give them bread. The whole idea of going to Moab is a cruel joke. The thought of going to Moab for refuge and provision is utterly difficult, but the cruel irony of verse 1 gives away to, to you get rid of the irony and we just get straight raw cruelty. We keep reading verses 3, 4, and 5. And as I'm about to read these verses, I want you to notice this. In the Hebrew, it's hard to pick out in the, in the English, but there is, there is, the way it is communicated here is it is choppy, it is terse, it is commu- what happens to Naomi and her family, it is unfeeling, it is cold. And here's what it says, verse 2 through 5. The man, name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the sons, the name of their sons were Malon and Kilion. Malon and Kilion mean sterile and spent. Now why you would name your sons that, I have no idea. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died Limelech dies. She's a widow. And she was left, though, with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Over the course of ten years, one decade, we get it in three verses. It only takes three verses Three verses for a life to be destroyed. Three verses. Ten years, one husband, two sons, 
zero grandchildren. What we see is it is a pattern of moving downward and things get worse and worse for Naomi. First she loses her husband, and that's bad. But she's still got her sons. And their sons do this thing. They go and marry Moabite women. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, the Israelites are commanded not to marry Moabite women. Do not touch them. Do not go near them. They are dirty. You're not to touch them. Oh no. Right? Imagine this. A Jewish mother. Boys? You married Moabite women? What are you doing? This is awful. But things go from bad to worse. Then there's ten years of infertility. Ten years. This is two wives. Two couples. This is 240 opportunities for pregnancy, and there are zero children out of it. Ten years. Ten years of double infertility, but it finally comes to end, but not with a positive pregnancy test, does it? No, no. It ends with the unthinkable. The premature death of both of Naomi's sons. Now, this is where we have to get some context. Historically, this for a woman in the ancient Near East, this is the end of her life. This is it. This is the worst possible case for her. The light had gone out in Elimelech's household, it, on, and on Naomi's watch. To see a family line end is the worst possible thing. Annihilation was the fate that the ancients feared the most. The death of Malon and Kilion bereaved Naomi of her beloved children. But not only that, but it has now left her with a life that is seen as purposeless, insignificant, and futile. There's nothing left for her. This is not just a sad day because she's lost children. It goes beyond that. The facts stated here essentially are this, that Naomi's life is over and her life is over with shame and utter failure. She has failed in her purpose. One commentator said this, that when they buried Naomi's sons, they may have essentially buried Naomi as well. In fact, that's actually in many countries in that day and age, that's what they did. When your husband or your sons died, they went ahead and buried and killed the wife and the mom as well. Overnight, her social status hit rock bottom, and Naomi, Naomi is not just bereaved. Naomi is not just somebody who's now going to struggle to find food. She is at risk. To be in that culture without male representation was to make her vulnerable. She is out there like someone who is just out there for the picking. The Hebrew word for widow is the word almana, and it cemented a widow's low rank, is the lowest ranked person in a patriarchal society. It comes from the root word alem, which means unable to speak. To be a widow in that culture and that society means you have no voice. And if you speak, no one hears you. No one hears you. Without a father, without a husband, without a son or a male relative to speak and act in her defense, she is a woman who is voiceless, who has no legal rights, and she has no recourse or protection against violence in a godless place with hardly any government control. She has no place and no source of income. Without a male protector, she was fair game for the unscrupulous who would regularly prey on women like this. She was alone in a male-dominated world, and Naomi was cast upon the mercy of a society that looked at women as nothing. You getting the picture of how bad it was for Naomi? So Naomi was lo- not only lost was a son, but she lost her purpose and her meaning for life and her existence. The destruction of Naomi's family, this is like someone took her resume and burned it in front of her. 
Everything that you've lived for is gone. Everything that gave you worth in this world is gone. And so she is now a woman who is consumed by grief, but also utterly disconnected from everything that gives her life meaning. And so we see this actually in the very text. It's hard for you to pick it out in the English. But in verse 5, the writer has been referring to Naomi by her proper name. She's called Naomi, Naomi, Naomi. And yet at the end, when she loses her husband and her sons, here's what it says. It simply says, the woman was left without her husband and sons. A picture of how she's viewed now. She is nameless, she is voiceless, and she has nothing. This is hopelessness. This is game over. Pause. Section 2. Verse 6, though, opens, opens with a glimmer. Just a glimmer. And it's for you, the reader. Verse 6 says what? It says that she hears that the famine is over in Bethlehem. That Bethlehem, the judgment of God, is no longer upon Bethlehem. By the way, it is judgment. Because Moab is only 50 miles away from Bethlehem. That's like the difference between here and Atlanta. Famines don't hit small areas. This is like the proverbial cartoon rain cloud over Bethlehem. That's what this is. And yet, there's a glimmer of hope because the famine is over. In the midst of the darkness and the hopelessness, there's one little glimmer, but that's not, Naomi is not there, is she? Let's, let's drop ourselves emotionally back where Naomi is. That's for you, the reader, that hope is coming, but that's not where Naomi is. She finds her place in a place where her heart and her soul are screaming out. And what is it saying? It is this question, God, where are you? Where are you? Section 2, verse 6 through 13. Let me read it all for you. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. You just notice this? She's already trying to get food for herself. She's out in the field. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to, to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as he has dealt with, with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the Lord has gone out against me. Real quick, what's going on here is Naomi's going to go home to see if she can salvage something of her life. Maybe find a family member who will take care of her. And on her way back, her two daughters-in-law go with her. Now, by the way, a lot of people look at this and say, aren't they so loving that they'll go with her? No, no. They are bound legally to go with her. She owns them. And that society, when, the, when they, they paid a, a price to have those girls in their home, to marry their sons, she owns them. They don't have to, they have to go with her. And actually what Naomi's doing here is a gracious thing. She is saying, you, you, I could send you in my, the field. In fact, the way she's going to treat Ruth for much of the rest of the book is like she's her servant. And yet what she does here, she said, you got to go home. I have nothing. My life is hopeless. You got to go back. I release you. Go back to your families. Get remarried to somebody else. 
And her daughters apparently have some sort of affection for or out of some sort of social uh, nicety say, no, 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 we will go with you. And so she has to launch into a tirade about what she views about her life in order to convince them to go. And here's what she essentially says. She says, if I were to get married tonight and if I were to be pregnant tonight and if I were to have a baby tonight, that sons, those sons would still have to grow up and you would be old before you could marry them. It's a practice they would have that if you lost, if, one of you, if you were married to somebody in the family and they, they died, then you could actually marry the next person in line in the household. But to drive home this point, what she passionately reminds them of is this, is that her life is bitter, that her life is hopeless, that her life is over, and that she has no hope. And she says, you don't want my life. My life is dead. Go back. Go up to Moab. And the questions that scream in Naomi's heart are brought to the forefront with this final declaration. What does she say? For the hand of Yahweh, or the hand of the Lord, has gone out against me. Her only conclusion is, is this, that Yahweh has brought this down upon me. That Yahweh has attacked me. Libby Gross, who's a commentator, she put it this way about, about Naomi's view of what God has done to her. Is this, Naomi is an Israelite. She is one of God's own, Yahweh's own children, and yet his own hand has persecuted her. There is deep, ancient, forever binding covenantal anguish in her complaint. Yahweh is her God, and yet he is against her. He has not only allowed, but orchestrated a mini holocaust within her family, of which she is the sole survivor, left destitute and without hope. That hurts. You might expect to be treated badly by some stranger, but not by your dad. That's how what Naomi is saying here. In other words, she is crying out to her covenant God and saying, where are you? You did this. Where are you in this? You see, Naomi doesn't just feel hopelessness. But as a part of that hopelessness, she actually believes that God is out to get her. That God is the one who is out. That she has lost God's love. And she sees in the darkness in, all, in every aspect of her life. For her, God is nowhere to be found except in wrath. Naomi, what I want to pose to you about this book is Naomi is a female Job. That she has lost everything. And like Job, she is crying out to God, where are you? Where is your provision? Where is your faithfulness? Where is your covenant love? Now understand this as the hearers and the listeners and the readers of Ruth. You're not supposed to be emotionally distant from this. All the detail the beauty of the way in which the writer is writing these things, the things that would, would draw you in and say, I, I know that feeling. I've experienced some part of that. That we should understand or have some sense of empathizing with these feelings that we have been in a place of hopelessness or despair or feeling that God is out to get us. By spotlighting Naomi's ordeal, the narrator is actually giving us permission to give voice to many of the same cries that Naomi cries out to the Lord's. And just as God, at the end of the book of Job, after some 38 chapters of Job crying out to God and debating with his friends, here we see God will answer Job, well, God will answer Naomi as well. She experiences God's answer and God's love on this long, hopeless road back to Bethlehem, not in the form as God came down to Job in a big, booming voice and answered him, but in the form of what? A person. In the simple touch of a human embrace, of someone who will walk with her. This brings us to section 3, verses 14 to 18. 
Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. What's going on here is Naomi has just given her arguments to convince Ruth not to go with her. And when Naomi guides, the, guides Ruth's eyes that this is a theological issue, that Orpah has gone home to her gods, something switches, something flips within Ruth, and she begins to speak. She actually commands in an imperative Naomi. She says, you will not urge me to leave anymore. You will not tell me to return. With startling determination, Ruth clings to Naomi and resolutely digs in her heels and insists that Naomi stop this line of argumentation. And then she does this. One commentator said this, that what Ruth says in verses 16 and 17 is an incandescent reply that has left us trembling for 30 centuries in regards to this display of love. Let me read it again to remind you about how profound the words are by Ruth. Where you go, I will go. Your people shall be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, there I will be buried. And then she actually ends it with a a covenantal curse. If I don't keep covenant faithfulness to you in this way, may God come after me. What I want want you to see here is there's a literary device, and it's actually quite beautiful. In the same way, in verses 3, 4, and 5, that he is given the staccato, cold, um, a keyboard clackety clack of the destruction of Naomi's life in verses three through five. We have something that is actually the opposite here. That God provides through the voice of Ruth wave after wave of poetic words of warmth and love and affection. That God has taken away, but yet in Ruth he is giving back. The artistry of the poem reflects Ruth's love and actually is poetry in the language. Each, there's three stanzas to it. It goes like this. Your life is my life. Your God is, your people are my people. Your God is my God. When you die or where you die, that is the place I will die. Reflect with me for just a few minutes on the wonder of Ruth's love here. Ruth says, your life is my life. What does that mean to say? means Naomi's life is over. That's what she's saying. My life is hopeless. My life is dead. If you want to have life, you separate yourself from me. And, and Ruth in love says this, oh my, your life is over, then I will walk with you. Then my life is over as well. You walk towards hopelessness, then I will walk towards it as well. To love Naomi means this for Ruth. Naomi is moving into a living hell, a living death. And Ruth says, listen, I will go to death then. This is covenantal love. This is love that goes to death. To love Naomi means death for her. In order for to give Naomi comfort, to show Naomi affection and love and care and support, what must happen to Ruth's life? She's not going to get remarried. That's the expectation. She's a Moabite going to Israel. She's going to be an immigrant with no money, with no um, prospects, no chance for any kind of life. And she says, I will go and I will embrace it to be with you. Your life is my life. Your people are my people. 
I think the best way to describe this is that your people's sufferings are going to be my sufferings. It was beautifully illustrated about a wedding I heard about a couple years ago about a man and a woman that are getting married. And in the vows that the woman used this statement by Ruth as a part of her wedding vows. And when she came to the point in which it said, your people are my people, she broke down in tears. Because the man that she was married, she was a, a girl, a white girl from an upper middle class family in Memphis. And she was marrying a Haitian whose family lived in utter poverty. To embrace your people is to embrace poverty. It's to embrace lowliness. Your God is my God. One scholar reflects on this to say this is that Ruth is saying, I lay down all my ethnic and my racial identity. Back then, there was no such thing as conversion. Know what conversion was back then? We kill you. That's conversion. We come into your land and we say, you bow to the gods or we take your head off. That's conversion. No one converts back then. But Ruth is saying this to Naomi, I will. I will give my life to this God. He is your God. I will give, he will become my God. And where you die, I will be buried. This is a faithfulness that goes unto death. She's not saying, hey, Naomi, you're old, and until you die, I'll take care of you, and then I'm going back to Moab. No, 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 no. I'm in this. I will go into death to be faithful to you. Others, what I want you to see this, Carolyn Custis James says this about this whole scene. With both eyes open to the consequences of her actions, Ruth slams and bolts the door shut to her own future, and she clings tenaciously to the despairing Naomi, then cries out for the heavens to fall on her if she fails to keep her word. This form of love should take your breath away. Now reflect on me for just a moment. That's Ruth's love. Real quick, just as a means of cutting the tension for you, reflect on me for just a minute about God's love. The story of where you were at and what God did. You know, Ruth's language here about you being my people and your God being my God, she's actually echoing the very language that God uses to Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, he says this, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. Leviticus chapter 24, I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people, and this is the character of our God. That Rufus reflecting a God maybe she has just now become to know, and this is what Jesus does for us. To communicate to us that I will be faithful, that my covenant love to you is unto what? Death. And that is exactly what the gospel is about, right? That we have a God who says, I will never leave you or forsake you. That even if you run away from me, even if you're telling me and pushing me away, I will pursue you and I will cling to you. And not only that, that I will enter into this world and I will enter into death to be faithful to you. What an unbelievable picture we have in Ruth of Christ's incarnational love for us. That God would bind himself to us. You see, in the form of Ruth, God provides Hesed love to Naomi. Where is God? I give you Naomi. Ruth is God's answer to Naomi's lament. Within seconds of Naomi's charge that the Lord has gone out against me. God, you're against me. Ruth pipes up. I will never leave you or forsake you. Echoing the voice of a faithful God. Ruth is the face of God to Naomi. Isn't that just like your God? To be that faithful to you. Section four, our final section. Verses 19 through 22. 
So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt bitterly against me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I want to utilize these verses to kind of give you some takeaways from the life of Naomi. Naomi is the central figure of chapter 1. The prime voice, the, the key nut voice in verses 16 and 17 comes from Ruth. But the main character, the central figure is Naomi. That she is the main one acting. She is the main one who has spoken. And even in verses 16 and 17, she is the one who is receiving the words of Naomi. And so I want you to see two things. One way that I want you to mimic Naomi from this. And one way that I think she is false. And that I want you to do better. Naomi is us. She's a believer in suffering, and she goes through it rather faithfully, and yet not perfectly. Her faithfulness is first seen in this. Naomi has some uncompromising steadfastness. Naomi, Naomi has gotten a bad rap, and perhaps it's because we have such a, because too many men have been commentators of the scriptures, and we look at men, women as in a patriarchal, kind of patronizing way, where we view them as just kind of catty. Job, when God devastates Job's life and Job cries out, people go, look at Job, what a, what a picture of faithfulness. Naomi, when she cries out to God, everyone, look at her, she's bitter and she's angry against God. She is so unfaithful. This is a woman who is way overly emotional. Come on, Naomi, get, it, get the grips, right? And we state our tropes, our gender ridiculous tropes. But what we actually see here is a woman of unbelievable steadfastness and faithfulness in the midst of unmitigated and devastating destruction and suffering, ones that actually Job knows nothing about. Job is a man. Job can actually provide for himself. Job can have a life. Her, her life is way more over than Job. Verse 13, we see actually something pretty significant about her convictions. Verse 13, 20, and 21, she says, My daughters, I am exceedingly bitter for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Verse 20, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly against me. Call me Na- don't call me Naomi, for the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Here's what Naomi believes here, and it's seen in her steadfastness. She believes God is in charge. Now, she might not like his ways, But she says something deeply theological here. She believes God is sovereign. And this is a repeat of something we saw last week. That good theology actually drives, it drives Naomi's frustration. That she didn't try to mitigate her frustrations by going, well, God really isn't in this. God's not in charge and therefore I can't be frustrated with God. No, 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 no. She lets loose in her lament and her frustration against God because she's somebody who actually believes in a sovereign God paganism of the day you know what they would do their view was well we just resign ourselves to the fates but she will not believe that she will not resign herself to the fates she believes that there is a god whose providential sovereign hand has ordained all of these things and so she actually has a place where she will point her finger and she say god you did this you did this and yet in this she actually shows great steadfastness because she directs her complaints to the one who can do something about it. Now understand this, she is not living in victory. 
She is not Ned Flanders, and she is not Joel Osteen with a big smile, and we're all just happy-go-lucky about the suffering that we're all enduring. She is not getting up and singing joyous songs with her coffee in the morning. No, she is letting people know that my life stinks. She is not confident or buoyant here, but she stays in relationship with God. You know, people who are cynical, they leave. Their relationship with God becomes cold. This is... This, this might be fury, but it ain't cold, right? This is a passionate relationship with God. And when she's calling out God's faithfulness and his covenant to her, she's saying, where are you in this? We have a word for this. The fact that she will not abandon God, even when God has brought suffering in her life. It's called faith. And because of her faith, it takes the form of lament. Now in the West, we've lost the practice of lamenting. We don't know how to do it. But one-third of the Psalms are laments, where the psalmist will pour his heart out before the Lord. Let me give you some examples of this. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far away? Why do you hide yourself in trouble? Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 35, 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? In other words, the psalmist is saying, you're seeing this, Right? And you're doing nothing about it. In Isaiah 63, 17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? The great example in the steadfastness of Naomi is that she stays in relationship and she deals with her gods. If God has brought suffering into your life, that is not the time to go, well, God's not in control. Or to go hardened and cynical about God. This is just, you know, God just does what God does. No, 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 you get in God's face. I don't suggest you, you curse and swear and spit. You're still facing a mighty God. But we see over and over and over again God's people and their covenant faithfulness actually get up in God's face and they shake his covenant in front of them and say, you said, you said it. You said it and I'm not going anywhere. You answer it. So you do that, you lament well before the Lord. Stay engaged. Second, one way to rise above Naomi, though. Naomi says this. She goes too far in her lament. He has left me. What does she say? I, I went away full, and I came back empty. Now, one, this is, this is not truthful, is it? In both ways. She ran away from a famine. They never going away full. It's a little bit of historical, you know, re-engineering, but the second thing that she says, though, is what? I come back empty. Is she empty? She's saying, I'm empty. And if she were just to swing her elbow a little bit, she would jam it into the side of a woman named Ruth. The one who is there, the very picture of God's has said love to her. And here's what I want you to see. There is a principle that happens to so many of us in the midst of a time of deep and dark suffering is this, as we forget that God is there with us. As we cannot see in the midst of affliction, Yahweh provides the means of easing our affliction, and we simply, we just, we're, it's so, life is so dark that perhaps we can't see it. We just don't see it. Roy Lauren, who writes a commentary in 2 Corinthians, says this. He gives a story of an illustration. It's actually kind of a fun anecdote at the end of a heavy sermon. He said, gives the illustration of a guy who was working at night on a construction project, and he was working on top of a wall several stories up. 
And on this wall, he was working he, in the midst, this is nighttime, and he lost his balance, and he slipped, and it begins to fall, and he cries out as he's falling, but as he falls, he grabs hold. He grabs hold of a steel beam, and he's hanging on for dear life. If he falls, he believes imminent death. And he's there, and he's screaming for help. Where are you? Someone help me. Someone save me. And he screams for an hour. Eventually he has to go quiet to try to save his energy because his hands and his fingers are barely able to hold on anymore. And over time, finally his hands cramp up and he loses his grip. And with a blood-curdling scream, he falls backwards about three feet. You see, in the dark, he didn't see that there was scaffolding right underneath him. The principle is this. Don't forget, listen, you may, not, you may not see it in the darkness. You may not see it. But if you're in a season of suffering, let me remind you of this. That God has sent you a Ruth. Yes, it happened 2,000 years ago. That's why it's so easy for us to forget. He sent you a Ruth in the form of a man named Jesus who came and said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he gave you a Holy Spirit, a living God inside of you who would whisper to you, Abba, Father, in the midst of the worst moments. And so maybe just swing your elbows a little bit, if I can remind you today if you're in suffering. Swing your elbows a little bit and remember that there is a God who has sent provision for you. Perhaps you've not been able to see it until now. But there's a God who puts scaffolding under you in the form of his son, the redemptive work there, and the promises that are there for you. The story gets better. And the answers are even greater. So come back next week and we'll continue our story in Ruth. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you that the Bible is so doggone honest. It's always amazing to me when we talk about sovereignty and people bring up terrible stories. Why would God allow this? But yet, God, you're never one who has shied away from it. You put these kind of stories in your scriptures and yet have the audacity to say, I am working and I am moving and I am there with you and I am in control of it all. And so gracious God, for those who are perhaps in a place of despair or mourning or fear, or most of us probably aren't where Naomi is, but we fear, it's the anticipation that perhaps one day we might be. Oh God, I pray that even now you would be girding our hearts up in the truth that you have sent us a better Ruth. You've sent us a perfect Ruth. And in Christ Jesus, one who has redeemed us our life from the pit, the one who has said, I'll never leave you, forsake you, the one who has come beside us and walks with us even into death itself. Remind us of that. Drive it home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.